Take your Bibles and join me in turning to 2 Timothy chapter number 3 this morning. 2 Timothy chapter number 3. If you would, 2 Timothy chapter number 3. Brother Ogle, just a few minutes ago I was uh, on the phone with Dr. Surrett and uh, enjoyed talking with him in light of the subject of my message today. I wanted to give him fair warning about it, so... You'll see why here in a few moments. But uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. This morning, several weeks ago, uh, probably two or three weeks ago, I decided uh, that there was a need for me to preach a message entitled Ambassador and the Bible. I want you to know where the college has been for the last 34 years on the subject of the Bible. And I want you to know where we firmly stand today. Uh, We live in an ever-changing world. There have been many people that have changed their positions on the Bible, and it's really aggravating sometimes when they look at me and say, well, you haven't changed, you're a heretic. And I'm like, well, that means you were a heretic 15 years ago, right? Uh, It's really pretty strong language uh, that's thrown out in the whole Bible version debate. But Ambassador's been consistent in its position And uh, I think there's a real need not only to reiterate it for you and for our faculty and for even me, myself as a president, but I think it's very important for people to come away from this message understanding this. You can have confidence in the Word of God. And I contend to you some of the greatest messes sometimes are made by scholarship, and I put scholarship in quotes And uh, so today I'd like to read you a passage and give you a little introduction to where I had to start thinking about the Bible and what version I was going to use and all of that and then just take you a little bit into what the Bible says about itself, how ambassador has arrived at the position it's in. And at the end I want to give you some practical considerations that I hope you won't forget. And so with that being said, 2 Timothy chapter number 3, I want to begin reading in verse 14. The Bible says, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and has been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And young people, I believe the passage that I've read to you this morning is perhaps one of the most clear and one of the most concise theologies of bibliology that you'll ever read. You know, when it comes to... Bible versions and what version of the Bible do you use? I'll never forget, I was not raised in a Christian home and the Bible that my mother did have was a New American Standard. I remember it took my mom a while to realize she was in a church, they were using the King James and she was like, why is my Bible different? And I looked at the front and I said, well, Mom, this says American Standard Version. She said, oh, okay. And she changed it up. But I'll never forget perhaps one of the most vivid illustrations that showed to me sometimes the confusion of multiplicity of Bible versions brings. There was a Southern Baptist church that was right up the road from where I lived and I would get to go there sometimes on Wednesday nights. Friends would take me and 
they would have a Bible study. And in that Bible study, the church was probably about 30 or 40 people there. And uh, every once in a while, they would let the teen group sit in the Bible study. Now, this was really different. Now, what little I had been in church, I'd have been accustomed to like sitting in a pew, looking at a pulpit, watching a man preach. And this service on Wednesday night was a little bit different. We were all sitting in a big circle. Uh, they had cleared out all the chairs. We were sitting in a big circle. Here I am, probably, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. And uh, I remember we were reading some passage and the pastor said, all right, he said, listen, let's, let's go around the room and let's read this verse, what your version says. And there were probably six or seven versions that were represented. Listen, I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm not a textual critic. I'm not a, you know, I, I'm not, at this point, I don't even think I'm saved. And I'm sitting there and I listen to these six or seven verses. And honestly, as an unsaved boy, I scratched my head and said, boy, that's different. It wasn't just a matter of, you know, they were sort of saying the same thing, but in a different way. There was some of it, and that's what the pastor was trying to bring out. He was like, oh, there's a multiplicity of things. And I'm just sitting here as confused as a bug in a yo-yo, all right? That's pretty confusing, all right? <clears throat> but, you know, I never forgot that. And uh, so basically what happened is I got saved at the age of 12, and I started going to a country church uh, with a pastor who loved God. A pastor who, to my knowledge, never had any formal education, but don't you be mistaken, he was a student and is still today a student of the Word of God. And I sat in that church and I started using, for the first time in my life, the King James Version of the Bible. Now, contrary to the opinion of some people, for the next four years of my life, I could actually understand it. And God actually did work in my heart through the preaching of a book that's 400 years old. I know that's hard for a lot of people in the modern world to imagine, but it happened. And uh, so that's how I was introduced to the King James Version. Of course, we're talking about English right now. And uh, so then I come to Bible college. And uh, I'd heard my pastor preach you know, the Bible, and I come to Bible college and I'm introduced to a class called General Bible Introduction. And I understand some of you have had it blow your socks off like it blew mine off. And I remember one night I was really troubled. I called up my pastor back home. I said, preacher, I said, I don't know about this. He said, what's going on? I said, this preacher is telling me that the Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek and I'm listening to all this, and I just, I don't know, I think, I think something's wrong. And I talked to him a little bit more, and I'll never forget his response. He said, boy, it's going to be okay. Just listen, they're telling you right. I said, all right, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> and then in my time at Ambassador, not only did I take general Bible introduction, I took Greek eventually in the... Master's level, I would take Hebrew. I took uh, textual criticism. Uh, you know, that was my introduction to really the, the Bible version issue. Now, I want to make a disclosure. I've never seen a Greek manuscript with my own two eyes. Uh, I've never firsthand beheld a Masoretic text manuscript. But that doesn't mean that I can't have confidence in the Bible. 
And I refuse to let any academic apply, imply such a thing. And while I admittedly am not a textual scholar, I'm much more interested in what the Bible says about itself than what everybody else says about it. And so I want you to listen carefully. I want to state for you the doctrinal statement of ambassador. And then I want to go back into our text and I want to just delve into it a little bit and to talk to you about where we stand on the Bible. And it's where we've always stood. This is what we have in our doctrinal statement. We say that we believe in the verbal, plenary inspiration of the Old and New Testaments, in the preservation of God's Word through the Hebrew Massacredit text and the Greek Textus Receptus, and that the King James Version is the best English translation of the Bible. Now that's what's stated in our doctrinal statement. I remember one time I was talking to a preacher and he said, you know, I'm a little bit concerned about that. You say it's the best translation of the Bible. I said, why is that? I said, it's true. I said, there are a number of translations out there and we believe it to be the best. And he said, well, you're not saying it's the only one. And I said, wait a second. I said, there's a lot of translations. There's scores of them out there. But I said, listen to me. When I go up to you and I say, I want you to know I've got the best wife. Does that mean I'm looking for another one? He said, I see what you're saying. (laughs) So please, be careful about reading between the lines, trying to state things in a way, you know, you just, listen, just cut through all that hogwash for a moment. And I want to give to you, first of all, what the Bible says about itself. And notice with me in 2 Timothy chapter 3, there are several things that you learn about the Bible from 2 Timothy chapter 3. The first thing you learn is the idea of revelation. Now, it's not all chronological in this passage, okay? I'll have to dissect it out. But you learn that God has revealed Himself when you see all Scripture. All right, that's a very specific revelation from God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture, that's the idea of revelation. Now, I'm going to go through this very quickly because I want to get through to what I need to say. But listen, without a doubt, God has revealed Himself to mankind, and I'm glad He has. Listen to me, I'm glad that every night when I see the moon shining, And every day I see the sun setting, I can be reminded that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth His handiwork, Psalm 19.1. For a man who won't even open his Bible, every day he sees the sky, God reveals Himself. And not only has God revealed Himself in creation, but also in our consciences, Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and the thoughts the mean, while accusing or else excusing one another, in the day which God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. You see that God has revealed Himself in creation. And in every individual, listen, there's the light of conscience. But what we're talking about is a very specific revelation. We're talking about God's Word, the Scripture. You know, God has revealed Himself to man throughout the eons, through appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. Dreams and visions, prophets, 
Jesus Himself and also the Bible. And the revelation that we have in our laps, the Word of God, this is the revelation from God. There's no more dreams. There's no more visions. I'm not going to go into all the details about that. That's for another time. But all Scripture... Listen to me, when I'm talking about the Bible, listen, Genesis is just as inspired as Revelation. You understand First Chronicles with all the begats is just as inspired as the book of John. All Scripture. You listen to somebody who takes one book of the Bible and tears it down, he might as well tear them all down. Because he is screaming against all Scripture, which we find, the, we find that is Revelation. But not only do you find Revelation... In 2 Timothy, you also find inspiration. Now, this is, an awful, this is an often debated point by people who use the King James Version. You have several different thinkings about it. All I would beg you to do is this. Stay where the Bible is at. Make your, con- make your belief about inspiration where the Bible is at. When the Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, listen, all Scripture is breathed out by God. All 66 books that you have, they are breathed out to you by God. Now, how did this process take place? Well, Second Peter 1, verse 21, it says, For the prophecy came not in the old time by the will of man, but every holy man, man, man of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Boy, wouldn't you have loved to have been there when John is on the Isle of Patmos and he's writing down things that men have never heard. You know, he didn't just dream that up. God gave it to him to write. You imagine some of these minor prophets. When we get to heaven, we talk to the minor prophets. Don't call them minor prophets. Hosea may say, just because my book's short doesn't mean it was not important. But here, as they thunder, consider your ways and their messages. God is giving this to them and it's being penned. Daniel, you go book by book, you find that God moved in the hearts of these men and He inspired His Word. But then you find people that would teach something, and we'll deal with it a little bit later. They talk about double inspiration. They say, well, I believe that God re-inspired His Word in 1611. I'm going to tell you why I have trouble with that. Two reasons. One is because I see here these holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit. And number two, if God had to fix in 1611 what got messed up for the first 1600 years, they're doing the same exact thing that critical text people do and saying, we don't know if we have the Word of God or not for 1600 years. I just simply believe this. I believe that God inspired it and He has kept it. I don't think you can deny that from a scriptural vantage point, while some may. So here we do not teach double inspiration, but I'll tell you what, I believe that what John wrote on the Isle of Patmos, I believe we can have faith in it today. God inspired His Word and He's kept it. So you see revelation, you see inspiration, and then you see illumination. And that from a child thou hast learned the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. And then in verse number 16, it's profitable for doctrine. Here's a word, reproof. 
When I talk about illumination, listen young people, this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Bible touching your soul. When you see it and you're like, wow. You ever come away from reading the Bible and you're like, I've never seen that before? You ever come away from the Bible and you're like, that was just for me. There's times where the Word of God reproves you. There's times it corrects you. It makes you wise unto salvation. You know, there's some people, they love to argue about the Bible and I contend that maybe the best thing they do is let it touch their souls. And not only do you have illumination, but then you have preservation. Thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. Here's a simple question. Do you think Timothy had the original manuscripts from Moses? I think all of us can answer that, right? GBI or no GBI. Do you think that he had the original writings of Daniel? No. But you know, one of the things I think is very important to emphasize that's not emphasized in some areas of scholarship, they sometimes cast so much doubt on the Word of God, and yet the Apostle Paul, listen to me, with great certainty, with writings of Scriptures that were thousands of years old, he said, Thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. That's the kind of certainty that we need in our pulpits today. That's the kind of certainty that you need to embrace as a believer. Listen, you read the Bible, God has kept it for you. I know there's some people that they say, well, I don't think that Psalm 12 verses 6 and 7 really talks about Bible preservation. Well, if you make the grammatical argument, listen, your grammatical argument is not quite as sure as you think it is. Don't quote everybody on it, but look in a lexicon or look somewhere for yourself. It definitely allows for the possibility of it. When the Bible says the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times, and we find thou will keep them, O Lord. But can I tell you, the preservation of the Scripture doesn't just stand on two verses. Open your eyes and you'll find that Timothy is it's alluded to in 2 Timothy. You find in Proverbs 22, verses 20 through 21, Have not I written to thee excellent things and counsels and knowledge, that I might make known the certainty of the words of truth, that thou mightest answer the words of truth to them that send unto thee? Notice it talks about the certainty of the words of truth. It's bothersome when I hear people and they're talking a lot about uncertainty. Do we, can we know this is in the Bible? This is happening in some independent Baptist ranks. I remember in textual criticism, I was blown away. Here I am, I'm a hillbilly in textual criticism class and we're looking at a critical text apparatus and you look at this thing where it's a Greek New Testament and they have things labeled A, B, C, and D. A is like this, we know it was there. B... We're pretty sure it was there. See, could be, but don't bet your life on it. And D, brother, I'm going to tell you what, if I'd believe that, I'd be an atheist tomorrow. You can have certainty in the Bible. God has kept His words for you. Psalm 33, verse 11. The counsel of the Lord standeth sure forever. The thoughts of His heart to all generations. 
Psalm 100 verse 5, For the Lord is good, His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endureth to all generations. First Peter, or excuse me, 2 Peter 1 verse 19, We also have a more sure word of prophecy. That's referring to the Scripture. With certainty. And yet there are some people that espouse that uncertainty. They say, well, you can't say for sure that we have all of the Word of God or you can't say for sure that that's the Word of God. You know, it's interesting, and I learned this from Brother Surrett. I'll be honest, some of the things that you've heard from me today, uh, I was taught by Brother Surrett years ago, but it's interesting. Brother Surrett points out in his book, 1 John chapter 5, verse 17, is uh, very much it's, it's something that's always hammered you know, as, as, or 5 verse 7, uh, as not being a part of the Scripture. Uh, they say, well, you know, First, first Timothy, uh, or excuse me, First John 5, 7, that's really not a part of the Scripture. But it's interesting, did you know that early Baptists in America affirmed the validity of First John 5, 7? Did you know that in the Philadelphia Confession of Faith, 1742, they refer to First John 5, 7? Did you know that New Hampshire Confession of Faith, 1833, that they referred to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7? And yet we find today people are taking the Bible apart and they're just taking out this and they're taking out that. I just want to tell you, I believe that we can say with certainty that God has kept His Word. I believe He's preserved it for all generations. I think it's undeniable. But not only do I want you to see those things that are talked about in First Timothy or Second Timothy chapter three, not only do I want you to see inspiration and revelation and illumination and preservation, but now I want to talk to you a little bit about the highlight of our textual position. You know, here in our doctrinal statement, we talk about the textus receptus. Now listen, it's twofold: the original languages of Hebrew and Greek, and then also English. The position of the school has always been to stand on the texts and the best representation of that text. All right, that's been our that's been our position for the last 30 some years. Now, before I go into some of these details and this is not going to be comprehensive as a matter of fact, I'll be slaughtered because some people say that's very overly simplistic and I'll be like, "All right, you tell me how to do it in 10 minutes and I'll give you a badge too." But, you know, it was very interesting. You know the people that firmed up my faith in the King James Version the most? Do you know that all three of them were originally critical text proponents? I didn't learn. Somebody's like, you learned from a King James Bible thumper. (laughs) No, I'll tell you what. first one that taught me about it graduated from Wheaton when it was a new evangelical institution and rubbed shoulders with Kenneth Weiss, the Greek scholar. And the more he studied the issue, he said, "Mm, this textual criticism doesn't ring true. The second one was a man who studied under James Price, who was the Old Testament Hebrew head at Tennessee Temple University, who was an executive editor of the New King James. And he steps back and he studies it and he says, "Mm, this isn't ringing true with the Bible. And then Brother Surrett who longtime faculty member, he was trained at Central Baptist Theological Seminary in Minnesota. And he was taught the critical text position. And he steps back and says, "Ah, the Bible says this, but the textual critic says this, and it doesn't line up. You know, here at the college, 
we teach that the scriptures were preserved in Greek and Hebrew and a little Aramaic, if you want to say that in Hebrew. Some people just lump it all together, but God preserved His Word. And I say that unashamedly. Listen, I'm glad that for some of you that are going to the mission field, if you're going to a mission field where they don't have a copy of the Scriptures, listen to me, you can go there and you can give them a gift that will last long beyond your lifetime there if you labor in the Scriptures and make it available to them. But we teach that God has preserved His Word. We do not believe in double inspiration. Yes, God inspired them and God has kept His Word and we can rest in it. But you know, you find primarily there are two schools of thought. You find what's called a critical text. These are the sources of your Bible. Critical text or traditional text. And I'm being a little bit overly broad on the tech, traditional text position because there's nuances of it that I could explain. But here's basically what Ambassador believes. Ambassador believes that the text that the church had for the first 18 years, or first 1800 years of church history is the line that God preserved and we're going to cling to it. For 1,800 years. Now some people would argue and they'd say, well, the first, 14, or the first 400 years we don't have any of those traditional uh, texts. And that's an argument from silence, number one. And number two, early church fathers quoted it. It's sort of hard for them to quote it if it ain't there. You know, my contention would be that the reason they didn't exist is because they probably got used up so much that, uh, and it's interesting, the four, the, the handful that they do discover in 1800, you know, these were hardly used. You're going to read commentaries that say this. They're going to say that, uh, you know, they're, they're going to say the oldest and best tra- manuscripts say this. You'll even find it, Dr. Childs, forgive me, but even in your Schofield Bibles. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, Dr. Schofield didn't have everything right. And I guess no study Bible does, but you'll see sometimes the oldest and best manuscripts. All right, when you see that, can I have you replace your thinking on that? Instead of really oldest and best, this is really what it means. It means the oldest found and least used. They're they're the oldest found manuscripts, but they're the least used. And the truth, you're like, well, we haven't found anything. You know, the same argument was made as to why there were no such things as Hittites in the Bible. They said there's no historical evidence, therefore it doesn't exist. Now there's a lot of liberals eating crow. You know why? Because archaeology just confirmed what the Bible said. Sorry, Josiah, I know people, I said eating crow, and they're looking at you and your sister. But listen to me, that's where you can't let archaeology be the judge. You've got to let the Bible be the judge. Man, I was just in Israel and they, 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 they probably need to uncover about 90% of that place to really find what's there. You know, there's some notable omissions in the critical text. John, John chapter, latter part of John 7 first part of John chapter 8, the last half of Mark 16. You know, it was interesting. I watched the other day. I could not believe it. Stephen Furtick, who is a full-blown heretic in Charlotte, North Carolina. I watched him take the Bible of a guest that was out in the auditorium and they went to a passage in Luke that had some textual disputes and I watched Stephen Furtick with my own eyes take his pen and mark it right out of the guy's Bible and hand it back to him. 
Now, when I told my critical text friends about that, they were still appalled. I mean, they were like, boy, that wasn't a good idea. And I'm like, you're right. But you know, there are a lot of, there's some omissions in the critical text. You buy modern versions today, you'll find that there are verses that are missing. There's a reason. I could go into some great detail on it, but I, I don't want to live there because that's not the entirety of the message. But here's what we believe. We believe that the King James Version is a faithful and excellent translation of the TR, and when you hold it in your hands, you have a copy of the Word of God, period. That's where we've been. You know, every year we minister in hundreds of churches that use the King James Version, they teach from the King James Version. I think it's important not just for you to know where we stand, but where churches know. Because you know what? I want churches to be able to send their students to a place that lines up with them doctrinally. It breaks my heart. They go off somewhere. I hear pastors say, we send them off to college and they come back changed. Now, sometimes people are going to change anyway, but if they change because of what they were taught in the classroom, I, you know, I just hate it that we're not reinforcing the ministry of that local church. I even hesitated on preaching this because it's really not the job of Ambassador Baptist College to set the course of any local church and for that matter any special conferences or major events. That's not my desire. That's not my goal. But if you come and you say, you know what, I believe we have the Word of God. I use the King James Version. You may not know all the ins and outs, but if that's where you're at, I want you to be able to feel at home in a place like this. You know, there's some people in the debate today, they like to discuss readability. I'm going to make a frank admission. There are some older words in this book. There sure are. I wrote an article not too long ago about words that we mountain people understand because we have some old English stuff in our vocabulary that we still use today, and so it's sort of neat to see that. But there are, there are some words. But I think for the people that say, you know what, reading the King James Version is like reading Spanish. I think that's a stretch. As a matter of fact, that's, that's not, I don't think it, I know it is. And you know what? There's some people, they say that you base your choice of aversion on readability and they never consider reliability. And I'm not here to discuss all of that today, but listen, I'm just planting a seed. If you talk about they say, well, I want to read what's more readable. Well, what if it's more readable, but it's not right? It just takes a little thinking, that's all. But what am I saying? I'm saying that here at Ambassador, we have taught from day one, we have taught the original languages of Greek and Hebrew. And we have taught that the King James Version is a faithful translation of that and you can have confidence in it. It is the Word of God. Why? Because it's been translated faithfully from a text that God has kept for us. But now the last thing I want to give you are some practical considerations. This is where I quit preaching and go to meddling a little bit. You know, when it comes to the Bible version issue, let me tell you some things that I see happening in our society today, happening with some of our brothers, and some of the things that may help you as you deliberate along the way. Here's a few of them. Number one, remember that the preface to the King James Version that was written by the translators is just as inspired as the book of Maps and the book of Concordance. 
Well, the translator said, that's good. But I would much rather take what Peter and Paul said over a King James translator in a preface. You say, well, is that preface bad? I'm not saying it's bad. But you know what? That's just not the authority. Think about it. Here's another thing that I want you to consider. Don't forget to live the Bible when contending for the Bible. (laughs) Don't forget to live the Bible when contending about the Bible. You know, some people have forsaken a good position because of a poor disposition. I'm not saying that's right. But that's the truth. And you know what? In my life, listen, I want somebody to embrace the truth because of me, not in spite of me. And you know what? There's just there, there's some things in it that go on sometimes. And I'll be honest, sometimes on social media, I'm ashamed for lost people to see my feed because Christians just don't know how to act. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking, I'm just, I'm just trying to, you know, teach them the Word of God. And here, all of a sudden, this blows up and you're like, wow, you know, it's like maybe I should have a, a secret feed. Here's my, you know, but that's a shame that you almost have to live a dichotomy because sometimes it's just like, it's just like war. But here's something else about that disposition thing I want you to remember A good disposition is often a great cloak for error. I think he's got a great disposition. Well, brother, if that's the only way you judge a position, you mark it down, you're headed for error. Ultimately, I can't judge what is right and wrong based on solely on disposition. And there's a lot of younger preachers that are doing that today. You know, I've had engagement with preachers who held different positions of mine, and I've purposefully kept the correspondence that I have, never to show it to anybody. But I'm amazed at how gracious they could be in public and how nasty they could be in private. (laughs) What you see is not always what is right. I'm going to tell you, there's people out there, they've got a great disposition. Man, they're winsome and they're charming. Isn't that true of Joel Olstein? Guy smiles from six in the morning till midnight at night. And he can tell you all kinds of things. Listen to me, young people. If you determine you see somebody, they got nasty, but they held a good position, and you base your position solely on somebody's disposition, your position is on shaky ground. My goal is have a good disposition and have a good position. Here's another thing. This may shock you, but you need to hear it. The average person in the pew does not care how many unsealed manuscripts make up the New Testament. They don't. I feel sorry for some people that they just live in the world of all of those different things, but they can't touch a soul with the Bible. You're like, well, man, I'm in Greek class. Well, that's good. I I still use it myself. 
But in the end, it's somebody usually like, how can I put my family back together? I think sometimes a lot of our problem would be solved if we'd get out from behind a desk and go reach people. That doesn't mean you shouldn't use, you know, you shouldn't care about those things. But I'm just saying, the person in the pew, that's not where they're at. Here's another thing I want to encourage you. Be ethical and honest about your position on the Bible. Years ago, I heard a graduate talk about how he had changed his position on the Bible while he was in college. And he was gloating about it, and privately, not publicly. I contacted him and I said, hey, did you sign that doctrinal statement to graduate? I don't think I ever got an answer. Can I tell you something? No matter what version of the Bible you use, I hope you, you understand it does teach ethics. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of dishonesty that takes place. When somebody goes into a church, and listen, if somebody changes their position after that, listen, I've known of people came to Ambassador, and after the fact, they changed their position. Now, am I happy about that? No. I sort of feel like George Whitfield, whenever people got saved in his meetings and they became Baptists when he was not, he was like, here, all of my chicks became ducks, all right? I sort of feel that way. But I'm going to tell you something. You be ethical and you'll be honest. If you don't hold that position, then you cannot sign that doctrinal statement. Go to a place where you can agree and thrive and go. But don't be dishonest. Seniors, every time you, when you see that doctrinal statement, can you affirm it? If you can't, you go see Brother Hanky. Sometimes people say, oh, I'm not sure, but by the time they talk about it, they are, and it's, it's okay. But, but listen, be honest, be ethical. If you're going to go into a church and that church is established and using the King James Version, and you have an agenda before you go in, listen, you are wrong. At the very least, sit down with a pulpit committee and say, I don't believe like you do, but I sure would like to change it. I'm going to tell you, God blesses integrity. And the Lord knows on the King James side of things, we probably not need a lot more on it, but I'm going to tell you what, we're not the only ones. Be ethical and honest. Another thing is be sure that the book supersedes the books. I've got a whole shelf in my library. It's donated, or it's donated, it's dedicated to the whole Bible issue. And I've read those. And I've read a lot of different things. But hey, listen, you better make sure if you know anything, you know what the Bible says about itself. I'll tell you a humbling thing. Years ago, I was taking a graduate level class and I had to carry this huge systematic theology book. It's about that thick. And I didn't have it as an e-book. And I had to carry it. It's a nuisance when you're traveling. You have to carry things like that. I'm going through TSA and I have to throw that book in there. Big letter, Systematic Theology. And I throw that in there with other things and it comes out the other side and there's a TSA agent and he's just sitting there. I'll never forget a man with a mustache and he looked down and he looked at that book. He said, 
Mm. He said, that book's a lot thicker than the book it's about. (laughs) And I'm going to tell you, when he said that, something rang true in my heart. He said, you better be careful. Yes, I want to read a book to know more about the Bible. But listen, don't you let those books be more important to you than this book. Here's another thing. Did you know that you don't have to know Greek and Hebrew and textual criticism to understand the Bible? Some of you are like, oh, that's the outlet. Why can't we all be English Bible majors? Let me snatch you up first and tell you something. The reason you take Greek and the reason you take Hebrew is because, listen to me, brother, you're going to need every tool you can to dig. And if you can take those tools and use them... You say, how do you dig with Greek? I'll tell you how you dig with Greek. When you're studying Acts chapter 17, and the Bible says that Paul's spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry, and you see that that word stirred is in a certain tense that shows you that he was stirred repeatedly. It was like Paul was looking over Athens and his heart was about to burst. Listen, I don't mind understanding the Bible as good as I can. And I want to use every tool, but I never want to give the impression that people in the pews are peons and without my commentary, they can't understand it. I'm going to tell you what. There's been some saints I've learned from in churches. They never sat in a Greek or Hebrew class, but I'll tell you what. They studied the Bible and they'd been with God. And sometimes our pride just needs a good kick. Here's another thing that I'll tell you. Don't bow to the gods of ignorance and academia. Don't bow to either one. Don't bow to the God of ignorance. Well, brother, I'm going to just tell you what. I don't care and I'm just going to say whatever I want to say. Listen, you read the Bible and you study it. You be able to defend your position. God doesn't bless ignorance. But when it comes to academia, I'm not against higher education. I'm not against being smart. But I don't want to bow to a form of scholarship that leads me away from biblical principle. And then here is sort of where I'd like to leave the message as far as the last practical consideration. So hopefully there'll be no question. You can have confidence that you have the Word of God in the King James Version. That's where we're at. Do I have all the answers to the questions of the textual debate? I do not. Do I have all the answers to, well, what about this discovery and what about this? I'll tell you what, I don't have the answers to everything. But Brother Surrett taught me this. I've never forgotten it. I would rather have unanswered questions about history than theology. I may not know every, every place of how this threads and weaves, but I'd whole much rather have questions about history than theology. I believe God inspired His Word. I believe He's preserved it. You know, one last thing I would tell you. I wish I could take all of you to the Museum of the Bible. There was one room that just wounded me when I saw it. 
There's one room in the Museum of the Bible, when you walk in, it has a volume on the shelf that represents every language in the world. And you'd see certain volumes that were a certain color. Let's just say it was green, saying that that language had the entire Bible in its language. Genesis to Revelation, entire Bible in its language. And then there was another section, and let's just say that was yellow. And this is everybody that has a New Testament in their language. And then there was another that was a different color, and these are languages that have a portion of the Bible in their language. And young people, I was blown away at how many languages have nothing. My heart breaks when I've got people, I think about, there's so many people arguing as to even whether or not we have the Word of God, even in religious circles, and there are billions that have never seen it in their language. According to the Museum of the Bible, there are 993,000 chapters of Scripture that still need to be translated for the entire, all languages to have their Bibles. And so you know what we do? Instead of dedicating our efforts to translating those Scriptures in those languages, so often we just pour our energies into arguing and big bickering and questioning while people die and go to hell and they never have their first... Listen, I am very grateful that God has given me in the English language a version that I can trust, a version that I can read and God can change my life. And it just saddens me to think that there's so much of the world that's never seen the first verse in their own language. Be wonderful for God to work in the hearts of some of our students. And you say, you know what? I, I'd like to be a part of the. I'd like to be a part of that change. I'd like to be a part of that movement. And so, believe what the Bible says about itself. Live it, and seek to get it into the hands of everybody that you can. That's ambassador in the Bible in a nutshell. And may God help you to know what the Bible says about itself and may you cling to it and not go to the left or to the right.